welcome to episode 16 of the Next Gen Cast. My name's Nish Manik, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and I started Next Generation GP four years ago now. This one's a bit of a longer episode, so let's dive right in. I've been really excited to do this episode for quite a long time. And those of you who've met Laura Nielsen at one of our Next Gen events will know why. She invariably moves audiences to tears and standing ovations really because of her incredibly powerful story of influencing health inequalities from when she was just a medical student. So Laura is the CEO of Hope Citadel Healthcare Community Interest Company and director of the Focused Care CIC as well. She founded Hope Citadel while she was a medical student living on a council estate in Oldham. Hope Citadel now runs 10 GP practices in some of the most hard-pressed areas of Greater Manchester, aiming to provide whole-person healthcare to everyone. And Laura's going to tell us how that all came about. She's absolutely passionate about tackling health inequalities and breaking down barriers to universal services. And in 2016, she was recognised as a leader in healthcare when she was awarded the Health Services Journal Rising Star Award. In this conversation, Laura tells me her amazing story of setting up Hope Citadel where she found the courage to influence health inequalities as a medical student, and her views on the role of doctors in social justice. So here's Laura Nielsen. So Laura Nielsen, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. Thank you very much for taking time to chat to me today. So we met a few years ago. I remember I had Steve Field speak at one of the very first Next Generation GP events. And I asked him afterwards, Steve, now you're the Chief Inspector of Primary Care for the CQC. You've been up and down the country. You've met all sorts of leaders. Who's the most inspiring leader that you've ever met? And he said, Laura Nielsen. So I knew then that I had to track you down and hear your story, and I did. And I was utterly blown away by what you told me. And I'm not alone because you've spoken at maybe five or six of our Next Gen GP events now, including our annual conference. And every time you speak, you you move people to tears. It usually ends in a standing ovation. And people talk about the courage that you give them in their own convictions. Because you're a great example of somebody who understands that leadership is simply about changing things around you and you don't need titles and authority in order to do that. You can do that much earlier on in your career. In fact, I think you've done it the earliest of anyone that we've had, certainly on the podcast so far. So I'm really excited just to hear your story today. And maybe we could just start at the beginning. So could you tell me a bit about the early Laura? So I went to St Albans High School for girls and I wore a blazer that looked like a deck chair and I learned to play um, lacrosse and I did ballet dancing and flute playing and it it was quite an interesting school to go to but despite kind of going there I always had this sense of there was a world beyond the world I lived in. So I lived in quite a middle class um, life really my parents were like those quite typical um 80s aspirationals my mum had massive 80s hair lots of jangly pearl jewelry my dad worked for a logistics company so it was all quite and there's four of us so four children to four and um 
very small. I was always um, in my own world of imagination, really. So I had lots of imaginary like things that I played. I used to play schools and I made like worksheets for my teddy bears. Like, I spent a lot of time in this world of slight make-believe. So slightly odd child, slightly quirky, <laughs> like really ridiculously happy. But despite all that, I just had this sense that that there was a bigger world out there. And I was always really interested in that. And at the time there was, I mean, this is going to show my age, but at the time there was the Iraq, Iraq war going on, which most of you guys probably don't remember. But there was this thing about Saddam Hussein poisoning the Marsh Arabs and this whole like beautiful landscape being destroyed, all these people dying. And I just remember being really struck by how wrong that was. And there was a whole thing at the time about cancelling Third World Debt called Jubilee 2000. And I lived, you know, close enough to London where I could go into London. And I used to go on these campaigns to, with my placard about cancelling Third World Debt and fair trade and all that kind of early social justice stuff, really. And that really captured me that like you could make the world a different place and the world could be a different place. That's when I started to get interested in things like homelessness. So I guess the crazy making up games for your teddy bears changed into something a bit more proactive and a bit more useful to the world um, through those experiences, really. And what happened next? So I left school. I left school and I had some like really good A-levels. I wanted to be a doctor, but at that time there was a kind of facade around medicine that you had to be this super person to do medicine. And I wasn't. Um, I'd, I was always like the B-team person. And that wasn't totally recognised in those schools um, where you were kind of praised if you were brilliant at something. They didn't want to sign my form to go to medical school. So I, I stubbornly had a gap year. And in that gap year, I ended up living in Manchester in Harper Hay as part of a youth work project. And that really was amazing. That's where my life definitely changed. So I lived in Harper Hay's like Coronation Street housing, terraced housing, right in the middle of like uh, Manchester. At the time, there was a big gang problem there. And there were like lots of competing gangs and, and quite organised crime networks. And we were just doing youth work with all these kids um, amongst all that. And that was just when I realised a couple of things, really. One is that life's not fair, which your parents tell you when you don't get the biggest portion of ice cream. But then it's different seeing it on those streets that life really isn't fair. And the other thing I realised was that um, the rules I'd grown up with, where if you work hard and you do well at school means you'll necessarily succeed, or if you have a job and you work hard, you'll get promoted. That doesn't really exist in a world of zero-hour contracts and casual labour and um, poor outcomes from schools. So it just started to unpick a lot of my belief system, really. And I got really passionate about these kids. And I run this youth group that we call Chaos, and because um, it was absolute chaos. So we lived there for three years and then I met my husband and then he was asked to do, do a church project on a different deprived estate called Fitton Hill. <clears throat> and we got married and moved to Fitton Hill. And that's really when the kind of link with healthcare started. By that point, I got into medical school. I had a little baby. And then in between like terms, basically, I used to get really frustrated that there wasn't a decent GP practice on the estate and that the healthcare was really quite poor and the health outcomes of the estate were really poor so that's how that whole journey started. Tell me a bit about that so you were at medical school and also coming home to this deprived community that clearly created some kind of burn in your heart there was something going on. So living in an area is really different from working in an area or learning about an area and um, I mean it was like doing some kind of immersive study for like a decade really. So my neighbours were my neighbours and I relied upon them to feed my cats when I went on holiday and put my bin out because I'm really disorganised. And they relied on me to kind of, you know, take post. And all that. So the usual neighbourly stuff. And I realised that, you know, in these areas, you spend a lot of time sat on the doorstep. So it's quite close. And 
you were at medical school learning something like you know nice guidance for hypertension or stroke and then I'd go home and my neighbor had just had a stroke and none of it happened it was just in your face the whole time or you'd you'd go to medical school and learn about depression and you'd be like but then I know my neighbor's depressed because they're about to be evicted and the husband's beating them up and the street is covered in litter and and so even if you give them tablets it's just instinctively know that's not going to be enough that's not going to help and the NHS you know is is a phenomenal organization and in COVID I mean how awesome is it that we live in a country with the NHS and I'm so grateful and all of you guys listening to this will have been digging deep but the edges of the NHS it's not fair and Tudor Hart wrote that in 1970 something where he wrote the inverse care law and what I was seeing was the inverse care law but in real life so with my neighbours with my friends with the kids at youth club and it's hard to see it's hard to see when you're learning one thing and then you're seeing another and that kind of spurned me on really I couldn't sit in that gap and not do anything. Where did your courage come from because the the thing is that gap I mean that gap sounds that's making me feel really emotional just listening to that gap but yet I can't imagine as a medical student I would have ever found the courage to then say I need to do something about this so something was different about you that you said I'm I'm a medical student I'm not even qualified yet and I'm going to change this so I didn't know then it would go as far as it has done and I'm quite glad I didn't <laughs> so I think I just wrote letters I wrote letters to the PCT at the time, which was like the equivalent of the NHS commissioning stuff. And I just said to them, you know, in Fitton Hill, our health outcomes are really poor and um, that's your problem and you should be doing more about it. And they weren't very eloquent letters. They were quite runty. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And then because I was living there, I got to know the local policeman and I got to know the local housing officer and I got to know the head teachers because my kids started to go to school and you kind of realise that all these people also want stuff to change. And they all identified that health was a massive barrier in their area. So if you're a policeman, you really need people to have decent mental health care and drug services. And you need people to have refuge if they're being beaten up from domestic violence because the whole system's linked. And if you're the school head teacher, you really want mums to to have support so they can get the kids into school on time because, you, you know, you need them in school. So so a lot of these professionals know the same families and know the problems and at that point it wasn't very connected at all but health was seen by all of them as a massive barrier so it was just a unique opportunity and I I don't think it wasn't thought through it was just let's do something and I didn't know you couldn't so now I would be more scared because now I think well that you know what this is going to lead me to have 54 meetings with you know management people and they'll talk down at me and you know but I knew none of that so I was just bouncing along innocently going I'm going to write a letter this is outrageous I'm going to write another letter I'm going to see what's going to happen and so that naivety actually was quite helpful and I think sometimes we can get hung up on when, when we're qualified when we're experienced when we're older when we have the title when somebody says we can we will by that it's too late often and also those people in those positions often they have titles but they still feel quite powerless <laughs> So power is really fascinating and it's not always with the with the people who have the position and it's not often with the people who have the job title. That's exactly what Next Generation GP is about. So what happened next? So tell me, so you wrote some ranty letters 
There was a unique opportunity because the government had decided to put more doctors surgeries into areas that they called underdoctored. So Lord Darcy, surgeon Lord Darcy, wrote this great paper saying what this what we need is more primary care. Whoop! Who knew a surgeon would write that? And he wrote this thing about underdoctored areas. And I just went through it and said, you know, you have to say this is an underdoctored area because it is. There's no doctors here. So the PCT also then partly because of pressure and partly because the other people around said they would apply for this Darcy scheme. And then this manager who I'd been arguing with for years and I really didn't get on with turned around to me one day and said, and seems as you've been so tenaciously irritating, you could think about tendering if you like. And he was really smarmy. And I went, I will. And like got in my car. What's tendering, Laura? Well, I have no idea. I didn't know what it meant either. So I just went, I will. Like How some old kind were of you at that time? 22. And I got back in my car. Decided, so the few things I knew. I knew that people who won the original contracts to run some of these services didn't know much about primary care. And they also didn't know anything about deprivation. And they saw it as a way into the NHS. And a lot of them were profit making. And I decided that nobody was going to make money out of the poverty of my neighbours. And that I did at least understand the estate. And I understood enough about healthcare and that I'd just give it a go. So we formed Hope Citadel as a not-for-profit organisation that's quite extreme not-for-profit. And we started really with a bunch of people who I knew I couldn't set it up on my own. So a friend of a friend of a friend's dad was a GP and I somehow managed to persuade him that it'd be a great idea to try this. And various things like that happened and we formed this little group and we formed the company. And then you go through this process called tendering, which is like writing 20 essays in two weeks. So, it, you know, it will say something like, how would you do infection control in a surgery? And you just write your answer. And I was so innocent and naive that I treated it like an academic exercise. I just Googled it and wrote down what you should write. And then you get through that and you go for an interview. Or sometimes you go for an interview. And this interview is hilarious because I've spoken to some of the commissioners since then because um, they're still around. And I turn up to this interview with a PowerPoint and a Take That song. <laughs> What? <laughs> I've not heard this bit of the story. And I, um, so I, I played this PowerPoint, which was all about how I knew this community and I knew this community could do really well. And I knew that if you took these kids, you could do this. And, and it was all to the, and I did the whole thing to the background of a take that song. Oh, my which, word. Which now you think, can you imagine going to an NHS <laughs> tendering process and saying, I'm just going to play some pop music, please? And part of it was I didn't know any different. I'd never been to anything. I'd never done presentations at that level. You know, the, the most I'd done was presenting your project at the end of a year at medical school and even that was a bit shambolic so I just I just did it and I mean there's a kind of massive grace in it and there's a massive fortuitousness in it and there's a massive courage also of the commissioners who looked at me and went we'll give it a go and so I showed courage in stepping forward and the people who joined me showed courage in joining me but um also, the commissioners deserve a lot of credit in going, yeah, we are going to take a slightly random punt and give it to them. Gosh, so lesson, player take that song when you're, <laughs> when you're trying. That is, that's incredible, though. I mean, did you, did, it, did you never feel out of your depth at all? You're, yeah. Here you are, like a 20-something medical student deciding to change healthcare in your community. It kind of blows my mind still. I've heard this so many times. It still blows yeah. my mind. No, I did. And I did. I just... I remember by I remember buying a shirt that now I look back and it's hideous. It was purple and but I thought you had to wear like a proper shirt and I don't look very good in shirts, but I didn't I thought you had to wear one. So I bought one and ironed it and turned up in it and I like that was me kind of feeling quite out of my depth and I remember being really nervous. We we found out that we'd won just just around Christmas time and I remember 
somebody ringing me when I was in Tesco's that we'd won. And I was so emotional in the middle of Tesco's, which also is not a good look. But I wasn't really, I just was really passionate about doing something for this community. I can't tell you, it's like a proper overwhelming weight. I've needed to do something and that this was an opportunity. And I think I did know that this was an opportunity of a lifetime. If you'd asked me, you know, when I was 22, 23, what would I like to do with my life? I'd be like, well, I'd quite like to be a GP and I'd quite like to run a practice. And in your head, you think that's going to happen when you're 50, because that's the kind of age range that you have at that point. And I did recognise that there was a window. And I think that's something else is that don't don't miss the small windows that come. You know, that that unique opportunity of putting a new practice into a state with government funding, I knew only happens once a generation. And I was at least going to have a go at, at trying to get in that position to do it. Did you have anyone around you, any role models or anyone? Most people, especially at that age, would, would turn to someone else and say, help. Did you have anyone? or were you? Just- I, no, I met a lovely lady I've not met since actually called Angela Lennox, who worked in Leicester. And she'd set up a, her GP practice, did some amazing work, kind of getting people into work and employment. And I'd gone to see her and... I'd really love to meet her again. She gave me probably like an hour and a half of her time. At, for You know, I was literally a, a medical student and she really encouraged me that one, it was possible and two, that you could do it. And she was quite honest about doing it as a woman and not waiting till you kind of it was perfect. And I mean, she didn't know me from anyone. And I've no idea if she goes the same talk to everybody who goes to see her. But I mean, just the generosity of giving me that time at that point was really quite inspiring for me and then I was part of a I mean just being honest I was part of a faith community who who we did really want things to change we kind of believed that there was good stuff to happen and there were little bits of miracles to find along the way and then some of our really early staff who joined so once we tended we set up and some of the early staff we worked with were really amazing like John Patterson who's still part of the team and you know the medical director here you know he was the first GP to take a job with Hope Citadel and got the vision and then then developed the vision with me and has been an advocate all the way through the 10 years and a massive support and you know some of the like Jenny who's who still works on reception came and joined us and she lives on the estate and there's people who came along in those early days that were pivotal and that's still the case now nothing I do is possible unless there are other people around this and in this and bought into it and wanting to do it it's really important you 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 can't do it alone Hmm. if you think you're going to be a Havoco hero and you're going to do it yourself then you're just deluded and you'll fall flat you have to have to have people with you I love that story of Angela and Lester that you mentioned. We should track her down and send this to yeah. her because other people's belief in you can just be so empowering. You cannot underestimate the power of that. How generous was that that she, yeah. she didn't know you and she took that time? And it's so important for us to remember to do that for other people, isn't it? Because you just don't know where it's going to lead. So tell me what happened next and some of the stories that you've told me before. You know, stories that make you stop. I never forgot you said that once in a talk. You said, pay attention to the things that make you stop. Can you yeah. tell us about some of the stories of people that have influenced yeah. your thinking? So, I mean, really early on, there were a couple of there were a couple of people who, who really made me realise that healthcare wasn't good enough. So one was my neighbour. So they were called Betty and Ward. And Ward had learning disabilities and Betty was quite quite old. And she 
was in a wheelchair and they were kind of looked after each other. So Ward looked after her and she kept Ward safe and he was in his 40s. And and then she had this stroke. And I remember thinking if something happens to Betty, what's going to happen to Ward? And just that, you know, that's a really that's a situation that we should be looking after people in. And then my other neighbour, who was an alcoholic, who was wonderful and hilarious, um, she fell over and she busted her wrist and she went to A&E and had it set. And then they said, oh, come back to Fracture Clinic. And she never went because she didn't open the post. And then we couldn't get her back in again. And then she ended up with a permanently completely busted wrist. And I remember taking her to A&E that day. She fell over and she was just treated so badly because she smelled and and she was an alcoholic. But I knew her as my neighbour and she was just, you know, a lovely lady and she had this alcohol problem but you know was so kind to to us and I just saw how the NHS because of busyness because of culture because people are different from us because 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 we just get it wrong on a human level and then there was a point where I just unfortunately and this isn't going to resonate very well at the moment there's a point where I just went to lots of funerals of people who were young and I before I'd moved to Fittenhill I'd only ever been to funerals of people who were old like my grandparents died when they were like ancient and crinkly and it was the right time for them to die and everyone was okay and then I suddenly went to this back to back and my husband was you know leading funerals of people who were young who'd committed suicide or died of PEs that were undiagnosed at 18 or died of alcohol poisoning or and I just had this real sense that I just want to go to a funeral of an old person, that something's really wrong when I'm going to these funerals of young people. So, yeah, there's stories that people, stories that make you sit up. You might not have the answers for them, but you can let them kind of meander around your brain and let them get hold of you as a person and in your heart and then let them motivate you to try and find ways through it. I think often to survive in medicine, we close off to all those stories or we just stop seeing them and that deadens us and deadens our response and deadens the system and you can't live there all the time unless you end up being an emotional wreck but moderating that so you 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 let yourself you know see have the courage to see even if you don't know quite what to do about it or it's unfixable at least see because that's a very human thing to do the fine balance isn't it because it can yeah. can be so draining but yet clearly for you it was the fire that kept you going so there you are with with the sort of weight of those stories and the people yeah. that you wanted to help and you, you formed your team and you, yeah. you won the tender. Tell me what happened next. Oh, it's just hilariously fun. <laughs> I It was like recruit people one week, induct them the next week. It was just um, bonkers, but brilliant. So we, we started off with no patients, which was a brilliant, amazing position to be in because you can then grow gradually and you can grow your systems gradually. And then I realised that healthcare is a lot about systems. So I talk about people a lot, but actually underneath most of my day job is sort of, is working out systems, if I'm being honest. Um, so we brought systems in and we and then we kind of just carried on, really. And we did our first 500 patients and everyone got really good care and the outcomes were really good and everyone was really positive. And then we realised that you go above 500 patients, you have to do it differently because you can't have like the GP sorting out the housing because it didn't work so that's when we started to introduce focus care which is our model of looking after our most chaotic vulnerable people that has now spread to lots of different practices in greater manchester can, can you tell us a bit more about that while while you're on it about yeah. focus care what is it we started this kind of obviously pre all the stuff around social prescribing but it was basically if you come to see a doctor and um or, or anyone in the surgery and the story doesn't add up or there's some concerns or there's something that doesn't quite fit 
or you know that medicine isn't going to be the only answer to this, then we, we put them to focus care. And focus care is somebody who's a band six worker in any discipline, health visiting, social work, probation, youth work, something like that. And they're good with people. They like people. They're tenacious. They are very good at reading situations and risk. And they go and do a home visit and they work out what's going on. So who's actually living in this house? What's actually going on here? Have we got water? Have we got food? Have we got electricity? Um, who's who's got mental health problems that are diagnosed, undiagnosed? What's you know what's going? What's the story behind the story? Is what we say. And then we just work with that household. We always work with households to unpick what might be going on. And then the stories spill out. And then once the stories spilled out, you can then work with it, can't you? And what we found is that combining that with really good medicine. So it's always based in primary care. It's always based in relationship. Um, you can get some really different outcomes for people and you can get some really significant change, not over a week, but over like six months, because um, none of us can change our lives in a week, but we can all change in six, six, 12 months. So that's what focus care is. And it allows the GPs to open Pandora's boxes. So I tell a story that when I was a medical student, I went to Clark Summit on a ward. And you know, when you come back and you have to present your clerking. And I said, you know, that they were all the all, all the stuff that's patient. And I said, you know, and they're in a tortoise and they had Kellogg's cornflakes for breakfast and, you know, all the kind of like details that the consultant really wants to know. And he let me finish. And he said, Laura, the thing is, is you have not mentioned the fact that this patient is bright yellow. And and uh, they obviously bright yellow. They look like Homer Simpson. Why didn't you mention it? And I didn't mention it because I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know what was causing it. And I didn't know what to do about it. So I just ignored it. And I tell that story quite a lot when we're working with doctors and nurses because we see social cues all the time or or little bits where our gut instinct says that's not right. But because we don't have a name for it or a pathway for it or a, we don't know what to do about it, we ignore the cue, we ignore mm. the sign. And when you look at safeguarding or complex cases or vulnerable people, there's that there's you look backwards, that's always happened. So focus care is a way of us saying, I don't know what the problem is. I can't give you a name. I don't know how to fix it, but there is something going on. It's amazing, Laura. And thanks for explaining it all. I think if people want to find out more, I remember looking, you've got a whole website just about focus care and it was featured on ITV. So there's some great videos as well. So back to your story. So you had recruited some people and you were setting up systems and processes. What happened next? We just grew over time. So we've, you know, we did some patient award days and we've just, we've just over, over the years we've played. And I think that's what is really interesting is that the healthcare, often you have these QI circle things you have to do and you have plans and you have strategies and you have guidelines. And actually all of that is important, but also you can play and you can experiment. So, you know, we had a group of mums who were all lonely. So we set up a toddler group in the surgery and um, now, you know, and we've got some alcoholic men who struggle to give up alcohol. So we have a bit of land at the garden at the back. So we've converted it into a little garden and it's it's not a very good garden, but they come and they do the gardening and they're not off alcohol and there's no massive change in them. But there are four of them come and they do it and they they get on and it's holding them. And, you know, is that a good intervention? Is that not a good intervention? It's a life intervention, isn't it? It's, mm. it's kind of how it is. It's messy. So you can play and some of the thing about healthcare is that we, we we try to think about how we can do stuff better in imaginative ways, as well as, you know, what's the coding like and what's the appointment book like and how does a telephone system get answered? But there's more space in medicine and because it's with humans, you can be more creative than just, you know, we're not we're not dealing with factories, are we? Do people ever say to you, you know, where's the evidence base for this or? 
Do you ever yeah. get criticised for the things that you do? Yeah, I mean, I remember like really early on when see a commissioner for our second year contract review and she said, and I told her all about these stories of people who changed their lives and said, Laura, the thing is, we don't commission you for that. We commission you for hypertension. And we want you to stop doing this stuff. Anyway, she moved jobs quite quickly, so we didn't have to stop doing it. And I remember being really deflated by that. But then actually, evidence only comes when people try new stuff and then you gain the evidence base. And what we found is doing the right thing is also the smart thing. So so often when we've tried these things, the, the health outcomes have followed almost like serendipitously afterwards. And you won't get the evidence base if no one ever tries anything new. And as long as you're not reckless or stupid or, you know, then then there's lots, isn't it? Then then you can there's more there is more space to be more creative. You know, I'm not saying we're, you know, not seeing any patients. We haven't replaced the GP with, I don't know, flag waving or something. But it is how around the edges and around systems and around interactions as humans, what what can we think about to make it better? And what are you proudest of? And you look, so you've been doing this for 10 years now. How many surgeries have you got? I think we're currently looking after 11. We're caretaking a couple at the moment that are, that are we're in difficult positions and we're caretaking them for a year or so whilst they sort, we sort them out. What are you proudest of in all of that? That's an incredible growth. Um, people. So I'm so proud. I'm so proud of us people who have joined and then they've grown so I'm really proud when we we have quite a lot of staff who come as receptionists and then become team leaders and then managers and we've had people who come for healthcare assistants who are down nursing associates and we've had people who've come as young people who've then gone back to night school and got qualifications and are now nurses and doctors and speech therapists and I'm proud of our patients who have walked away from domestic violence and then sent us a card out the blue six years later to say that they're living in Wales and they're doing really well and their kids just graduated. I'm proud of I'm proud of our I'm proud of our nurses who diligently encourage behaviour change every time we do a quaff review and give people hope that life can be different. You know, I'm just I'm proud of the people. And I hope this isn't a difficult question, but you know, all the way you were doing this, you were, in terms of seniority to the doctors and the people that you're working with, you are less senior than them. You were a medical student. Did that ever, and I'm asking it because I wonder if people out there are thinking, I'm just a trainee, or I'm just this, I'm just that, I'm just a newly qualified GP, how can I change things? Did that ever come into your mind? You know, I'm just a medical student, how can I actually do what I want to do? Yeah, and it still comes up, you know, I, I probably at least once a week go to a meeting where I go, um, I'm Laura and and I go, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm not a GP because they always introduce me to GP and, and I have to always say oh, I'm not a GP. And then, you know, even now I probably get asked at least every fortnight what qualifications I've got and, and it, it, you know, 11 years on, it's a bit draining, isn't it? I, I frequent, you know, I am still told by people that they don't think that maybe someone else should should do some stuff I'm doing but if not me who and and I've definitely now I've earned, I know that I've earned my place at the table and I I, I know what I'm doing mm. you know most days but it takes time and you have to kind of just roll with that a bit you know all of us will face bits where it doesn't quite work for us or you know whether we're women or BAME or whether we're you know different sexuality or whether we've just got funny teeth or we don't like wearing you know certain shoes or 
there's always a bit that means we as humans don't feel we fit in or we're not what other people are looking for. You're never going to be that person because you're not. So, you know, I, I am never going to be blonde haired unless I have an awful crisis with a home dyeing kit. You know, I'm never going to be blonde and I'm never going to be the person that turns up in a suit because I just can't do it. And and I have accepted now that I may or may not ever finish training, but that doesn't change the impact that I can have. And I may or may not end up with an with an amazing you know opportunity, but I have opportunities every day. And how you work with people and how you treat people and how you encourage people and how you motivate other people and how you let others grow. I really hate the culture where for someone to succeed, you have to push people down. That worldview strategy is just really, really wrong. And we treat other people like that in medicine quite a lot. You know, for me to get my training place, other people can't have it. For me to get my job in whatever organisation I want, other people can't have it. I'm going to prove I'm better. I'm going to out-tweet them. I'm going to elbow them. I'm going to make them look stupid. That never wins for anybody. Mm. It's a horrible culture. And I really work hard in the organisations I work in not to have that culture. I love it when people succeed. I love it when people outperform because they're really good. I really love it when more talented people come along than I am. So, you know, try, even if you're in a culture, a hospital or a practice where it's a bit elbowy, you don't need to have sharp elbows. It's about having that abundance mentality, isn't it? Not scarcity, yeah. which is what we often focus on. What you talk about is just so, so right. And all this leadership stuff, I mean, you've never had any leadership training, but from everyone that I speak to that knows you, they say that you're an incredible incredible person to work for where do you think you've learned how to do that um I read quite a lot so I'd encourage you to read or podcast or whatever your chosen way of learning is and think and the experiences that hurt are often the ones that are really formative so you know I remember the first time that we had to I guess sack somebody and I didn't do it very well and that left them hurt and that left me hurt and and I thought about that. And then the next time it has to happen, it's very rare. But, you know, mm. I was like, I'm not going to I'm not going to cock that up the same. So I, I, I do think I, I think about how I am quite a lot. And also one of the advantages of being, as you said before, you know, I was always quite junior compared to the people who I was with. You know, we have quite which meant that they would tell me when I got it wrong and they had more permission to speak openly than if it had been the other way around hierarchically. And I've tried to keep that. Um, so, you know, people can tell us when we got it right. And I know when I've got it wrong. I know when I've been a complete cow at work. And and actually, I'm I will apologize for that. And I'll talk to people and I'll text them and I'll own it and I'll, and then I'll try and work out why why did I react like that that day why was I short-tempered why did I send that email when I didn't need to send it that day why and it's often because I'm feeling anxious or worried or upset or insecure or knackered and so the more self-awareness you have of yourself the better you can be with other people and you're never leading for you're leading with and you're enabling so you know, right at the beginning of COVID, we did have quite a kind of probably the most command control that I've ever been was the first couple of weeks of COVID when, you know, we had to make decisions about whether you're going to open your doors and how people eat and what was going to happen. But it only lasted like three weeks, you know, and then go back into it. So take feedback and also take take situations. It's really easy. Sorry, I'm waffling now, but it's really easy if you do something. So you, it's often with people, isn't it? 
So it's either difficult HR situations or conversations with juniors or conversations with your own supervisor and it all goes wrong and it all feels awkward. And then afterwards, you can replay that in your head to make yourself feel better. So you go, well, they're such a cow or they don't listen anyway or the system set up against me or I tried really hard, but I don't, you know, I couldn't do anything else. That's really like normal, but it's not quite true, is it? So Mm. try and get beyond that in yourself and go into the kind of what could I have done differently and and make that and it's often small things it's not like I'm going to change personalities I'm going to become a different person it's like I could have when they said that if I had just breathed and not and not been defensive that part of the conversation would have gone and then the whole thing would have flowed differently so just I'd encourage people to just reflect and that's the same with leadership you know I've made some howling decisions I mean, I, we can do another podcast one day, next time, maybe long way. But um, I mean, there's some howlers, but you have to own them. You have to be honest about them. You have to be honest with the people around you. If mm. you cover it up, you lose the trust of people around you, and mm. that that is really bad. So you have to own it. You have to be honest. You have to face it, and you have to kind of work out how you can not do that again, if possible. Mm, that's such good advice, Laura. I just want to change tack a little bit and ask you a few things that I'm quite curious to know. You talked about being anxious and worried earlier on, and I wondered, with health inequalities, and I don't have much experience of it, so maybe I'm just not, I'm talking from inexperience, but I was really just disappointed. You know, when Marmot's 10-year-on review came out and it was essentially not very much has changed and maybe we've gone a bit backwards, and you talk to people who work in health inequalities and you say, what, what do you think we should be doing? And they say, look at Marmot's report from 10 years ago and do it. We still haven't done it. And that can be so overwhelming and so disappointing and so demoralising. When you think about the wider picture, do you ever feel a sense of despair? And if so, how do you cope with it? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, who can't not really? I mean, I went to that mama, I saw mama present his stuff and it was like a couple of weeks before co- like proper COVID went mad, wasn't it? And I remember sitting in the hall and the first thing was how posh London is. <laughs> and then the second thing was, I'm really glad he said it because I didn't know what he was going to say. And I sat there in the hall and thought he's saying that it's got worse. And that resonates with my experience on the ground. So for me, it was kind of, quite reassuring that he's found it because quite often in areas of difficulty or deprivation you say stuff and other people go oh no it's not like that and you think am I going mad definitely definitely is like this so it's saddening isn't it we as a society have some really interesting decisions we could make in the next year coming out of covid and I really hope that some of the stuff we've learned about coming out of covid is not how you tender in a crisis or who you give contracts to at government level or what kind of gloves you buy that is not that useful what I really want us to see is come out is what kind of society do we want to live in how do we look after people who work in our care homes who don't get paid real living wage still how do we look after our health and social care sector where our cleaners are as valued as our consultants because they are you know how do we come out of this where we build a system where we manage to look at the problem of social care properly for our older people and our disabled adults and have a proper conversation about it rather than just chucking it down the road. And then on society level, we've got big things, you know, we have to tackle climate change. You know, we have to, it's it's looming. We in the West will be protected from it. But, you know, our communities who are the poorest and the weakest and the most at risk will be the most affected by climate change. 
And if you think lockdown has been boring, I'm not, I was, I'm not an eco mass, you know, I'm not a Greta, but if you think lockdown has been boring, if climate change goes wrong, lockdown is a reality, you know, for, for, for a long time. You know, it's not just a season, a couple of months and another one. So coming out of this, we have to, we have to be proactive in our thinking and we have to think beyond our politics and we have to think beyond our current imagination into this new place. And that includes health inequalities. There's a win-win where we make society fairer, we make the climate fairer, we re-rejig how we work. And it is a win-win for everybody. You know, there's huge amounts of evidence, isn't it? When society becomes more unequal, we all suffer. Murder rates go up, our fear goes up, our anxiety goes up. So we have to kind of we have to learn to do this together and it's this thing about abundance or or restriction and it's the thing about rights and it's the thing about meaning to now fascinating things with covid have happened i'm really ranting now but you know who knew that the furlough scheme money would be set much higher than universal credit and there's lots of middle class people living on furlough who are struggling because their wages normally higher than furlough and then universal credit for those who've ended up on universal credit who never thought they'd be there in their lives. Suddenly, it's absolutely awful. So we have a whole bunch of people who've experienced our benefit system and our social system and the way society treats those people for the first time. And that learning could be pivotal in how we come out of this. So we have a choice whether we go out and we, we try to get back to what was normal before, which is a facade, or we can try and look at a new world. And a new way of doing stuff, which will, which is where you coalesce climate, social justice, green issues, and and we can do it. We can totally do it. It's such a brilliant, like your passion just shows so clearly through that. That it's such a great call to action. Do you think, as doctors, we have a responsibility to contribute to that? Yeah, and I'm not saying this as somebody who's got it sorted. Like mm. my car is a diesel car, and I'm waiting for it to die. And then I don't know whether I can afford to buy an electric one because they're just quite expensive and all that kind of you know. There's society stuff that can help us all do this. You know, if if I was telling you that in ten years' time, loads of people are getting heart attacks, we'd all be going, "Oh, let's do some controlled trials about how we stop that happening, and let's get some evidence, and let's do some stuff." And climate change is like that, isn't it? We don't quite know the impacts of it, but we do know some of it. We know flooding. We know weird events. We know food shortages might happen. I, my children are, you know, teenagers. I really want them to be able to have a life that is that is fun and enjoyable and is the kind of life that we've all been given. For them to have that, we have to start looking at climate change properly. Doctors have always been people who've been social reformists. You know, whether it was kind of, you know, right back in the day of the, the pump and cholera and, and we were often the people who backed people when we had factory rules and child labour and we've talked and we have been fairly good at being social reformers. We tend to get issues early. We were the people that gave up smoking first. So if you're bothered about evidence based medicine, you should be bothered about climate change. And that, that's and I'm working it out. You know, I'm working out what my shoes are broken. What shoes do you buy? Mm. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I'm working out that once you put all your energy onto green stuff and you've got a solar panel on your roof of your practice, what what next? You know, how, how do you do this? But I think as doctors, society listens to us, government tends to listen to us. And I think if we took up climate change as a medical emergency alongside a climate emergency, which it is, we have a contribution to make to that. And on an individual level, as part of 
the group of practices that you're leading. If we were going to have this conversation in, I don't know, 10 years time, what would you like to be able to say that you've achieved for your patient population? Um, meaningfulness. I want them to have work that gives dignity and dignity as in that they they know they can afford their bills and they can plan a bit. Like working a zero hours contract is like this is I was about to swear then it's a rubbish thing. You and I would struggle to keep our mental health if we didn't know we were going to be paid at the end of the month and how much that would be. And you and I would be struggling to think about what happens if I don't pick up any shifts next week? Where do I get food from? And that's the reality of a lot of our patients for a lot of the time. And that's the ones that are working hard. Access to adult education and retraining is could be could be much more imaginatively done to capture people in a meaningful way. They have contribution to make and we need them to make contribution, but we don't seem to enable it very much. And I think if we had if people had meaningfulness, mm. I'm making that up, aren't I? If they had yeah. something that that gives dignity that gives joy then a lot of our other issues that we try and sort out in health will 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 be lessened and we can either tackle their depression in 10 years time and their transvas score and their cardiovascular score and their cancer risk and we can chuck them through expensive treatments and stuff or we can try and do something now proactive to to mean that we have the next generation of 40 50 year olds who are healthier than than the employment rate suggests they might be in 20 years time I hear you completely and I think all the time lots of people listening to this podcast will have worked incredibly hard during Covid and yet I think that sense of purpose that you're actually able to do something was probably what has got us through as doctors but what can we do Laura as as clinicians what can we do to help other people it feels like something that not I'm not saying it's out of our remit I agree with you I think it's so important but I wouldn't know where to start so if you're you know if you're if you're a GP, accept people onto a list who are homeless. Mm. You know, you might feel uncomfortable. You might not know what to say. You might feel a bit out of your depth. Oh, my goodness, they might have loads of issues I don't know what to do with. Just see it as a learning opportunity and treat them as humanity and do it human to human. And it might go wrong, unlikely, but, you know, let them on your list. Let's have let's let refugees asylum seekers onto our lists. Um, let's not be prissy about, you know, setting up appointment systems where you have to jump through 17 hoops. Um, if you're a, if you're a hospital doctor, you know, ask the questions about not just the social questions you were taught in medical school about drugs and alcohol and you know employment, but ask what's, who lives in the household, who's there at home, what's going on, what you know, just be a bit more nosy. Um, if you're doing outpatients clinic, why don't you pick up the files of the people who are the poorest? See them. Don't see Twinset Pearl Brigade. See the people poorest. I did a piece of research that was never published because it was a bit dynamitey. In, in an outpatient department and basically the people who were the poorest got seen by the junior staff and the people who were the richest got seen by the senior staff flip it flip it for a month see what happens it will challenge you as a doctor like small acts can make a difference in social justice you know let's talk about if you're in a hospital trust and you're on the board to let put climate change on it what's the trust doing about the climate emergency if you're in a gp practice you know i haven't got the solutions it's not like we're running around here cycling everywhere yet but, you know, if we don't have it in any of our, if we don't have this stuff on our horizon, you know, if you're a hospital trust, can you become a proper in, uh, apprenticeship generating organisation? You could be an institute that that push, pulls people, young people through. There's an employment crisis for young people in our country at the moment. Our public sector could become one of the massive influences of that set up apprenticeships for young people. 
you know, do the kickstart program. If you're an HR director at a trust, work out how to do it. Just, you know, just make 20 jobs for uh, young people. The, the pay is quite low. It's not like it's not hugely costly, but make it happen. Give them an opportunity. Give them prospects. There's tons of stuff we can do. It's just once you start thinking about it, what can I do rather than what can't I do? What can I do? Laura for Prime Minister. That's what I was no, saying. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm hoping that people have just got sparks setting off the fact that you've just started that conversation. Laura, I just want to finish with a, a personal thing, actually. I'd love to know, every time I speak to you, I come away totally in awe. Where do you get your energy from? What sustains you at home? And how do you switch off from what, frankly, must be a really difficult job at times? I have some really amazing friends that I laugh a lot with. I have some amazing people in my life who look after me. My kids are a source of happiness and frustration in equal measure. Um, honestly, it's so so sad, isn't it? But I, for the first time since lockdown, I found that I quite like walking on my own. I mean, how sad is that? I thought about getting a dog, but that's quite a lot of effort just to go for a walk. So I just walk now. I walk myself. Um, you know, I like music. Uh, I'm become I'm quite I have to be quite disciplined about sleep because I lose the plot if I don't sleep so I sleep more than other people because I'm glad you mentioned that you know because I I'm a big I've got a big thing about sleep and I think especially doctors leaders you know how little sleep can I get by on it's almost like an act of bravado and yet you know we're walking around half drunk most of the time because most of us are not getting enough sleep no I properly like I have to eat regularly otherwise I get hangry and angry and miserable and a bit bitchy and I have to sleep otherwise Mm. I cry put in place the stuff that keeps you human you know be kind to yourself you're not a robot Mm. um I watched the other day back-to-back episodes of 24 hours in police custody uh (laughs) because it's quite interesting and it just kept playing and you know you can see that's a waste of your life and a waste of time but actually I was it's fine isn't it it's just one afternoon Mm. but life is for living and have joy like just live and create opportunities for giggling and especially when you're giving so much every day you have to fill yourself up otherwise how can you everyone has to don't they what's what's your favorite thing to do in life and most people will say have a cup of tea or a glass of wine with my best mate like what whoever they are whatever Mm. job they do have whatever their income whatever society from whatever culture from if you ask people what's your favorite thing in the world to do it's it's always a variation on that because we're human we like giggling we like laughing we like being with people we love do it do it Mm. more so, Laura, just the final three questions that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and you can take this in any direction you like, okay? So the first question is, can you tell me a leader that has really inspired you, that you look up to? I've been really lucky. Um, so I worked with Aidan Halligan for a couple of years, and he really inspired me because he was so passionate and made me feel like a uh, lightweight, really. Um, and he believed in me, which was a massive thing. Steve Field, I think, is a leader who showed huge courage at CQC in in how he led that bit. And, you know, his legacy kind of is still there. Um, I actually really like the leader of our local primary school, who's been there for years, doing her best as a head teacher, amazingly committed to that, to those kids. She is also a hero of mine. There's just so many special people, isn't there? I met Ron couple of weeks ago online and he lost his wife a year ago and is just uh, contributing and has become a mentor to teenagers in lockdown who 
were a bit isolated. He meets them on Zoom at 85. There's just amazing people everywhere, isn't there? You'll mm. see them. Start looking for them and you'll see them all over the place. And who's Aidan Halligan for people that don't know? Tell us about him. He's a professor. He was a deputy chief medical officer. Unfortunately, he died um, a few years ago now. And I work with him probably as an apprentice. And the second question is a, a book or a resource that you'd recommend for people to look at? I'm currently listening to Brené Brown's Dare to Lead okay. on audiobook. And I'm sure some of you've read it already, but I hadn't. So I'm listening to that. And that has really been positive for me. Thank you. And the final question is, what are your top sort of three top tips for new leaders who might be listening to this? Look after the people around you. You don't need to win at their expense. And sleep. sleep. (laughs) Let's go for sleep. Sleep well. (laughs) Yeah, let's do that because nobody says that. Thank you. Laura, that was absolutely incredible. Every time I speak to you, I come away with this. She's amazing. And also all the things that I've ever thought about that I kind of want to do or change or, you know, maybe one day I I get the sense of belief that I can do Mm. it. I also get the sense of responsibility as a doctor. How am I going to do do some good with this Mm. privilege that I've been given? I I partly just wanted to record it for my own benefit so (laughs) I can have Laura in my pocket when I need (laughs) it. When I feel out of my depth, I think, what did Laura do? Let me just have another listen. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, thank you. So that was episode 16 with wonderful Laura Nielsen. I love the way that Laura completely embodies the ethos behind Next Generation GP, which is that leadership is a verb. It's about changing things around you. It's about influence. It's not a noun. It's not about titles and authority. If you enjoyed that episode, please do share it with someone else who might find it inspiring. Subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to be part of NextGen, we do have programmes open at the moment and accepting applications in Wales and Essex. And all of those details are on our website. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon for episode 17 of the NextGen cast. 